Book of Acts, chapter 8. Sunday morning, studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It will be marked to our passage this morning for your convenience. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is, to Stephen's death, And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. And multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. There's a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, Both men and women were baptized, and then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. For they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, literally to hell with you and your money, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. And so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they, that is Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many cities of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for church. Thank you for the assembling together of the saints. And Lord, we pray as we have come here today to bless you and to give to you as we have prayer and worship and all of the ways that you give us to do that. 
But we've also come to hear your voice, Lord, and nothing in the world means more to us in the highs and lows and the in-betweens of life than to hear your voice and to understand your will for our lives. And so we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit right now, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to the church through this, these verses in Acts chapter 8, which will outlive the heavens and the earth. Bless us, Lord. Speak to us. Continue to thoroughly furnish us unto every good work, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the problems that a Bible teacher can run into in the book of Acts, as well as other passages in the Bible that are in the form of a narrative, is that they don't always break down easily into a three, four, five-point sermon. And uh, so often where you would take a passage like the one that we're looking at, there's a certain thing where I would want to focus on exclusively, but if I were to leave out some of the other things that are contained within the passage, it would be a disservice to all of us. There are certain things that are built into this narrative that we read this morning, and indeed the whole book of Acts. There are things that are explained in this particular section of Scripture that help us to understand things that have occurred earlier in the book of Acts. There are certain things that are spoken of in these verses that lay a foundation for us to understand what is coming in the book of Acts, and without understanding them, we won't be able to fully appreciate those things. And so this morning, I would like to take, uh, accomplish two things in this particular passage, and that is to examine some of the specifics in this account that answer some of the questions that we might have concerning where we've been in the book of Acts and also lay a foundation for what comes next in the book of Acts. And then second, I'll close with what I think are one or two very helpful applications from the passage that apply to our lives as Christians today. And hopefully the sermon and the outline won't be as jarring as the old Presbyterian preacher that I heard about years ago who uh, had a hobby horse of speaking continually on the subject of infant baptism, and he introduced his sermon one morning. First, I'm going to speak on a word about the text, and second, a word of application, and third, a word about infant baptism. So, uh, well, that, that's readily understood. That's a joke, by the way, and uh, readily understood by pastors and perhaps it hits too close to home for you um, as it relates to sermons you've heard here before. We notice that following the martyrdom of Stephen, a great persecution rose against the Christians there in Jerusalem. And uh, in Jerusalem where they remained very, very concentrated. And this persecution is described for us in the first three verses of the chapter. And the driving force that we're told behind this persecution was a man by the name of Saul. And it is the same man who will eventually end up saved and become known famously as the Apostle Paul. In chapter 7, we're told that he held the garments of the other religious leaders who stoned Stephen to death outside of the city of Jerusalem. And he consented, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 8, to Stephen's death, 
And the idea is given to us clearly in the New Living Translation where it's translated, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. I want you to notice further the strength of the words that are used by the Holy Spirit to describe the persecution that was meted out upon the Christians, this early church in the city of Jerusalem. We're told in verse 1 that it was a great persecution. And the word great in the original language, megas, it means the upper range of extent. The Greek word for persecution there speaks of to cause ruinous injury, to affix a stigma, to dishonor, to defile, to treat shamefully, to ravage, to devastate, to ruin. We see the word scattered in verse 1. And this persecution was so great that it scattered the Christians in Jerusalem in all directions in order to escape the greatness of the persecution. The 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost, the 5,000 that were later saved at the preaching of Peter at the beautiful gate at the, at the temple in Jerusalem, and then the multitudes that were told who were later saved in the preaching of the gospel until all of Jerusalem was filled with the gospel and filled with Christians, all of them now forced to flee for their lives from their homes and from the city of Jerusalem. Havoc is a word that's used concerning the persecution in verse 3. And the word literally means to cause harm to, to injure, to destroy. The word is used in the Greek as it's used. It denotes a brutal cruelty. It's used of a wild boar ravaging a vineyard or of a wild animal savaging a body, savaging an animal that it is just killed. And what Saul has gone into at this point in his life following the death of Stephen is he has gone into an animal-like frenzy. He is bent upon utterly destroying Christianity, utterly destroying every single Christian in the city of Jerusalem. And after wreaking havoc upon them there, he's later going to attempt to do the same thing in Damascus. We're told in verse 3 that he forcefully and forcibly entered the houses of believers. Somehow he had some kind of a system of tracking them and knowing where they lived. Breaking into their homes, imagine this. Imagine the arrogance and the religious pride of such a man. I I read the passage and I think to myself, who do you think you are? that you can treat any other human being on any other level in the way that you are doing it. You're out of your mind. And he was out of his mind in this frenzy that he's involved in. Verse 3 is the word dragging, forcefully dragging people out of their homes. Have you ever dragged a person in your life? Have you ever dragged somebody out of their home? And here is this Saul of Tarsus, doing exactly that to the early church, and not only to men, but also to women. Imagine it. And then as as if all of that were not enough, he then, verse 3, committed them to prison, imprisoning them for simply being Christians, and he would later admit to even worse concerning his own life as he stood before 
a religious mob in Jerusalem in the area of the temple, men in, who were exactly like he once was before he became saved. And as the Apostle Paul, he declared to them, I persecuted this way, speaking of the church, to death, binding and delivering them into prisons, both men and women. That's an amazing portrait that is painted of us, of Saul of Tarsus. And it's one thing to read all of it, I think, on the printed page. It's something else to put ourselves in the place of those Christians and then try to feel the humiliation of all of it, the confusion of all of it, the terror of all of it, the fleeing for their lives. And Saul was no longer content to be an observer in the persecution of the church, no longer content to hold coats He became an active participant for sure, and indeed he became the leader of this persecution. And the death of Stephen, somehow seeing him die, seeing him lying under that pile of stones, it only made him even more bloodthirsty, and he struck the church in a way in which it had never been struck before, and he took persecution to a level no one had taken it to before. And it was his genius. It was in his heart. It was his personality. It was his nature. It was his bent. It was something that he had a gift for. It was an ugly thing about him. But Saul of Tarsus, before he became the Apostle Paul, he had a gift for this very thing, and he had a heart to do it. And I think it's important to understand that before he became a Christian, the Apostle Paul was a monster And there is so much in Saul of Tarsus to dislike and to even hate. He was an awful human being. In every way you can be awful, he was an awful human being. He was brutal and heartless and intolerant, stunningly arrogant. He was a bully, and he was the worst kind of bully of all, a religious bully. And he was a religious terrorist, really. He was, was very much in a different vein entirely, a different religion entirely, but very much like people we read about in the news on a daily basis today. And he had no verbal, no biblical or rational answer to Stephen's teaching, so he participates in his death, and then he does what the rest would not do, and that is he expands the persecution in the same degree against the rest of the body of Christ. And in all of this, there's a battle going on in his heart and in his mind. Believe it to be true, my friends, because it is true, as we'll see in another chapter. And what Saul of Tarsus is doing is Stephen has completely dismantled his religious system the thing that he has committed his life to, the thing that he has bet his eternity upon, the thing that he sees himself committing his life to for the rest of his life, his interpretation of the law and of the prophets, a misguided and a boneheaded interpretation of the law and the prophets, of the Pharisees, a thousand miles away from what God intended them to be and to communicate about himself to mankind. And all of this now has been threatened by Stephen. He sees the implication of Christianity for what it is that he believes in. And so he is now going to artificially protect his wrong understanding of the law and the prophets 
by removing this opposing view of it from Jerusalem. And when a person has to artificially protect their argument or belief, it is a confession of the weakness of their argument and of their belief. And it is a confession that the person who sets up those artificial protections recognizes the weakness of their argument. And that's why we should, one of the great things, there are a lot of great things spiritually about living in the United States of America as a Christian. There's a lot of challenges to it as well. But one of the great things about free speech concerning religion is people are able to say whatever they want about what they think about Christianity. They can blog about it. They can have websites about it. They can speak about it. They can assemble and attack it. They can do all of those things. And none of it is detrimental toward Christianity at all. It will never have any kind of effect of ultimately hindering it, much less destroying it. All it does when you take truth and you put it in that kind of a form and that kind of a venue is you simply strengthen it. And so one of the great things about Christianity in the United States is the fact that it isn't protected. It isn't artificially protected, not in our universities not in the public forum, not anywhere. It is examined in every way it can be examined, attacked in every way that it can be attacked. And we allow it to be so, and God allows it to be so because He is not afraid of the most vicious examination of His truth and of His gospel because He knows it will stand victoriously against any and all attack and that every attack against it is never a reflection upon God or upon the gospel or upon His Word, but it merely reflects badly upon the person who attacks it. It is only the person who recognizes the weakness of what they believe, that they feel that now I must artificially protect it, which is a word for our universities in the United States of America who recognize increasingly the weakness of the theory of evolution. And what do they do? And rather than allowing for a level playing field related to this, we're talking about atheists. We're talking about people who believe that life is on planet Earth because it came by way of some kind of bacteria on uh, flying saucers. They have no interest in the Bible at all, but they cannot bring themselves to believe in evolution and rather than allowing a level playing field in what our universities, what do they do? They artificially protect, and they do so at the highest level because they recognize the weakness of the position. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing. He knows that what he believes in can't stand in the face of what it is that Stephen believed in and what it is that he preached. Islam is another classic example of all of this today. The artificial protection of something is a recognition of the weakness of the belief. I don't think that it is unlawful to dislike who and what Saul of Tarsus was before becoming a Christian. He would write later of himself when he looked back, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, 
But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundantly with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And if we do not understand who and what the Apostle Paul was before he was born again, we will never understand this man who fills so much of the New Testament, and we will never appreciate the miracle of his conversion, and we will never receive the hope that his conversion brings to our desire for hopeless cases as we would look at them to be saved in our families and among our friends, or the statements of Paul, statements like these that fill his epistles concerning his former life as a Pharisee, and his subsequent life as a Christian. He wrote to the church at Philippi, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And though I also might have confidence in the flesh... If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And then here it is. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. And yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as dung that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection." And the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Of the multiplied thousands of Christians who were then scattered out of Jerusalem in order to protect their life and their limb, for his purposes, the Holy Spirit focuses now on a single man by the name of Philip. And like Stephen, we're told in the passage that he was, uh, or we know from earlier in chapter 7, that he was one of the seven deacons appointed, rather in Acts chapter 6, to oversee the daily distribution uh, to the widows. And if Stephen was the first martyr of the early church, then his fellow deacon became the first missionary. And they chose their deacons very, very well, didn't they? In verse 5, his scattering took him into the city of Samaria, presumably the capital city of Samaria. And he preached Christ to them. And that is, we're told in verse 5, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He didn't preach Judaism to them. He didn't preach religion to them. But he preached Christ to them. They already had religion. What they needed was a, religion, a relationship with Jesus through faith in His name. And the Holy Spirit jumps in in Samaria with both feet, and He confirms the preaching of uh, Philip there in that 
uh, area of Samaria, confirming his preaching with accompanying signs and wonders. And the result, we're told in verses 6 through 12, is that with one accord, the multitudes, verse 6, heeded the things which were spoken by Philip. Many were delivered from demon possession. The whole area was a place that was utterly dominated by the occult because of Simon the sorcerer. Here they come in, and they're being delivered by the demon possession that, of course, is going to follow an emphasis upon the occult. Verse 7, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Verse 8, the entire city was filled with joy. Verse 12, they believed unto salvation. Verse 12, they were water baptized. And the results were so great in that capital city of Samaria, in the region of Samaria, that this revival, this great outpouring of the Spirit has been called the Samaritan Pentecost. And what a difference the gospel made in that city and in the people of the city. It turned the whole city right side up. And the fact that Philip is a Jew would travel into the region of Israel known as Samaria, what we know more or less today as the West Bank, was a miracle in itself. And the fact that the Samaritans would even listen to anything that a Jew would have to say to them was a miracle on top of a miracle. And the reason that the heeding of the message of, of Philip to them was such a miracle because heaped upon the scene that Philip went into was an animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews that had a 700-year history, going all the way back until in the Old Testament to when the northern kingdom of Judah, because of their apostasy, was ultimately taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians did in Israel what they did to all of the nations that they conquered. They dispossessed the native population and brought in foreigners with all of their gods and all of their idols. And so they did in the northern kingdom of Israel. And these people came in with all of their idolatry. They began to intermingle with the Jews, and they became a distinct race known as the Samaritans. They developed their own distinct religion that wasn't Judaism, and it wasn't purely the idolatry that they had come out of, but it was some hybrid. And over the course of the years, when the Jews ultimately came back from the Babylonian captivity into the land of Israel, they discovered that the Samaritans had no interest in leaving at all, but continuing the worship of their false gods and their false religion and continuing on as they had. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. They hated them for possessing their land. They hated them racially, that they were this kind of hybrid of Jew and Gentile. They hated them religiously for believing the things that they, had, they believed in. And the Samaritans, as is the case with any persecuted people, they hated the Jews as much as the Jews ever hated them. And all of this has gone on for 700 long years in their history until one day in John chapter 4, Jesus walks into the village of the Samaritans and he meets a woman at a well and he begins to speak to her. And she encapsulates 700 years of history in speaking to him following his request for uh, a drink of water. And she said, 
don't you know that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? But Jesus had dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus come, Philip now comes into this region, preaches the gospel. God overcomes all of this discrimination, all of this racial and religious hatred that had gone on for so many years, and he brings them all into the body of Christ. And Philip, like his Savior, went into Samaria just like Jesus did. He ignored all of the racial and religious prejudice of the day in order to bring the truth of God's love and salvation to them. And may we follow their example in doing so in our hour in human history for advancing the gospel and the kingdom of God. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. We talk about the United States of America being the great melting pot. You and I know it's not melting so good right now. Since the 60s, at least, we've become the most hyphenated country in the world. There is a name for every kind of person. There is a group for every kind of person in the United States of America. And it's getting lumpier and lumpier and lumpier, and it is fragmenting and fragmenting and fragmenting before our eyes by the month and by the year. We are now divided like never before in my lifetimes in terms of sex, male and female. We are divided in a powerful way, in an increasing way in uh, the last few years in terms of race. There is this division that is going on all around us, pitting one class of people against another and one group of people who makes this amount of money against another group of people who makes this amount of money. And it's very easy to get pulled into this kind of thing. And even as a Christian, and they begin to take sides in all of this, and it's important that we as Christians, if no one else does, to rise above all of this and to see people as people in need of salvation and to tell everyone how to be reconciled to God. God is interested in uniting people. He knows that we have Him as our Creator. He knows that we all come from Adam and Eve, universally so, and this division that is going on. And if nobody else has eyes to see that none of it comes from God, God is not interested in dividing people, but in uniting people and uniting them in the single greatest force in all of the universe, the single thing that is greater than all of the things that would divide us, and that is the cross of Christ. If no one else can see that and not be pulled into this nonsense today, well, then Christians ought to see that. Don't be pulled into the divisions. The fields are wide unto harvest. Whatever the Samaria may be to you, there are people that are there that need to be saved. And if God sends us and uses some disturbance in our life to send us in the same way that He sent Philip, then it is only to have the heart of our Savior in going there. And then I want us to notice for a moment this unusual character. In this passage, it is known as Simon the Sorcerer in verses 9 through 13. He had dazzled the entire city uh, with his power and with his sorcery, and not only the city, but the entire region. And people had respect 
from uh, for him, from the greatest to the least that we're told because of his power. Philip's come, Philip comes into this man's stronghold, comes into a demonic stronghold where Simon the sorcerer has established his camp. And this great, and it's a beautiful thing about this passage, this great clash occurred between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. This wonderful power encounter occurs in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip won, and the devil, and Simon lost. And Simon, to his credit, he recognized it immediately. He recognized that he was on the losing side here, that there is now a power that this man has tapped into that is far greater than the power that he has tapped into. And, the, and he joined the multitude in believing in Jesus for salvation and being baptized in verse 13. There's this dispute that goes on between whether Simon was a true believer or not. And Bible scholars go back and forth and students of the Bible in, in a long discussion concerning all of it. Was he really a Christian or was he just a professor and not a possessor, as the old saying goes. Those who contend that Simon was not a sincere believer, despite the fact that we're told in verse 13 that he believed the gospel and was water baptized, is because of Peter's rebuke of Simon when Simon offered him money so that he could have the power to lay hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter's response, as we read in verses 20 through 23, was very, very strong. And so people look and say, Peter would have never said such a thing to a man who was truly born again. But then there are others that look at what Simon said and what he did and think that as wrong and as misguided as, as it was, that they, as they look at it, they see in Simon really only what would be typical of someone coming to the Lord out of his background. After all, brand new Christians often come to know the Lord, and the only thing that they know about Christianity is how to be saved. And there's a whole world of information that they need to learn beyond that, and they tend to learn it by making a lot of mistakes in the early part of their Christian life. And plus, they observe from the passage Simon's plea for prayer that none of what Peter had spoken to him would come to pass, and that prayer is much more consistent with someone with a soft heart toward the things of God than someone with a hard heart. And so from the biblical record here, the debate is probably never ever going to be solved dogmatically, but the Bible does say love hopes all things. And I hope to see him in heaven, and for my personal opinion is I expect to. But maybe it's because, and maybe I think it's because I know what it's like to come to Christ out of a very goofed-up background, as many as you do, and I know all of the mistakes that you can make as an early Christian that maybe other Christians didn't make, and so they're a little more harsh on Simon the Sorcerer. We must spend just another moment or two on this seemingly odd sequence of events as it relates to the Holy Spirit in verse 12 and again in verses 15 through 16. And this drives Bible students crazy. Uh, Acts chapter 8 drives them crazy in the area of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit and what happens here. 
And I think, from my perspective, there's a very simple explanation for it. The sequence of events is simple. Verse 5, Philip preached the gospel to the Samaritans. Verse 12, the people of the city believed, and it's the same word that is used of believed in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the same Greek word. They believed the gospel Philip preached. Further in verse 12, Philip proceeded to baptize them, and so they're clearly Christians. Uh, Philip would have never, ever baptized them if they weren't Christians. And yet back in Jerusalem, they get word that a revival has broken out in Samaria, and we've got a mere deacon out there. And so they sent Peter and John to go check it out in verse 14. And when they arrived, they prayed then for these Samaritan believers, and they laid hands on them in order to received the Holy Spirit, for as yet He had fallen upon none of them. This passage in Acts chapter 8 helps to clear up two very important areas of controversy concerning the Holy Spirit uh, today in the baptism with the Holy Spirit. First, here we have the baptism with the Holy Spirit happening in Christians some period of time after they've been born again. And there is no denying it within the passage. Remember, the, first, the three Greek words that are used to describe the relationship, Jesus spoke about it in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in speaking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit para with them. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit the Greek preposition is en. It is our English word, in. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit in us, or we can't be a Christian. But Jesus spoke about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and He spoke about it being the Holy Spirit coming upon. Apai is the word that He uses. The Holy Spirit coming upon a Christian in order to give us the power to be a witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And you notice as it's spoken about there in verse 16, as they came and laid hands on them and prayed for them, for as yet He, that is the Holy Spirit, had fallen. Notice that next word, upon. It is not talking about conversion. This is referring to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And clearly, again, you have people becoming Christians, fully Christians, the Holy Spirit with them and in them, earlier there in, in, uh, in verse 13, and yet some period of time lapsing and then becoming baptized with the Holy Spirit subsequently. And here's what it forces those who believe that when we become Christians, we receive all of the Holy Spirit that we need at that moment of conversion. And there is no second blessing. There is no baptism with the Holy Spirit. There is no second experience with the Holy Spirit. I understand that, and I'm sympathetic toward the view. And, but here is a passage, and here is an exception to the rule, which I am, if I'm going to be careful about all of this and faithful to it, I must recognize that here's an instance where somebody was born again, but the baptism with the Holy Spirit occurred in their life some period of time afterwards. In other words, there can be occasions in people's lives where they're fully born again, 
but the receiving of the power to be a witness to Christ in any environment that He puts us in the world, they receive that uh, consequence uh, uh, subsequent to that particular event. And so, I have to be careful not to say every Christian receives everything at the moment of their conversion because here's an exception to the rule. When my wife Karen became born again, she received everything, baptism of the Holy Spirit included at the time of her conversion. Maybe that's the norm for most Christians. I don't know. I know that for me, I became born again, and it would be several weeks before I would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why? I don't know, but that's how it worked out in my life. The question is, is to ask myself as a Christian, do I have the power operating in my life and coming forth from my life as a torrent of living water to live successfully for God in any neighborhood, in any home, in any environment that He puts me in, whether it's in Modesto or on the other side of the world. And if I lack that power to live a victorious Christian life, then there's a greater experience for me to have with the Holy Spirit, and it is the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and so to simply ask for it. As Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And it's there for the receiving. Jesus described the baptism with the Holy Spirit as a torrent of living water coming out of our innermost being. Enough of the Holy Spirit within my life, not only to be able to live a Christian life myself, but so that everyone I come into contact with as a Christian will then come into contact with the Holy Spirit pouring through my life. We become spiritual human drinking fountains in the world in which we live. And the world is a thirsty place spiritually, and God knows it. And when people come into contact with Damien Kyle, he doesn't want them coming into contact with the old Damien Kyle, but coming into contact with the Holy Spirit who is now in me and pouring forth from my life. And the same thing is true of your life as well. There is the other extreme concerning a view of the Holy Spirit, and that is that the idea that um, there are many Christians that teach that the single great evidence of a person being baptized with the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, that you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit unless you speak with tongues. But here is an occasion in Acts chapter 8 where you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurring, and yet there is no manifestation of the gift of tongues. No gift of tongues manifested, and yet clearly the Holy Spirit has come upon them. They've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, those that hold that view will typically then say, someone from a Pentecostal background, and I'm not putting the Pentecostals down at all, or a charismatic background might uh, say in response to that, where somebody says, hey, you can't be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't speak in tongues. You say, well, in here's a place in Acts chapter 8 where the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred, and they didn't speak in tongues. And then they will say, and you ought to be prepared for it, they'll say, well, something happened. 
There was some manifestation of the Holy Spirit in this baptism with the Holy Spirit because somehow something happened in their lives that Simon, upon seeing it, wanted to have the same power in his own life to bestow the Holy Spirit in that same way. So, Acts chapter 8, and that something must refer to the gift of tongues. Don't read into silence. Don't read into God's silence. I exhort myself, I beg you, never do it with the Scriptures. God is very capable and able to speak for Himself. And if He wanted to make the manifestation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here to include tongues as that manifestation, He could have readily done it. He knows how to communicate, and He knows how to speak, and He knows how to write His Bible. And so don't read into the silence and certainly don't speak into it. When I look at the things of the Holy Spirit, and I see how there are certain things that we can absolutely say concerning the Holy Spirit, and the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit. And we can say these things are absolutely true, and we can know them to be true about not only the Holy Spirit, but the activity of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole world of that, a theology of the Holy Spirit, that we don't need to dispute about. We can all agree upon those things because they're clear in the Scriptures. But there are certain things about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God keeps open-ended, that God wants to keep a little wiggle room for Himself related to that. And clearly, He wants a little wiggle room concerning the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and when it can occur in a Christian's life, that it doesn't always happen the same way at the same time in every person's life. And He wants a little bit of wiggle room concerning the gift of tongues. That yes, four out of the five times that the baptism with the Holy Spirit occurs in the book of Acts, there is the manifestation of the gift of tongues. But here in this one place, He doesn't manifest the gift or He doesn't record for us that He's done it in order to keep us from doing the one thing that so many people do, and that is to say that the gift of tongues is the single great manifestation of receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And it seems as you look at the nuances of God's Word concerning the Holy Spirit, He is keeping us, especially those of us who like to tie everything up into a nice, neat little package and not have any mystery associated with God in these issues. He is pushing us back from those positions so that He can be the God He wants to be and be the Holy Spirit that He wants to be in each person's life, in the timing that He wants to be, and, and with that kind of freedom, and so that we don't come to these kind of conclusions that are beyond the Scriptures that then put God's people in some kind of condemnation. Here they are, they believe that they have received everything of the Spirit at the moment that they have been saved, and yet they get kicked by the devil around the block every single day concerning addiction to sin or failing to stand up for Christ in a conversation or in some kind of environment, and they know that they're missing out 
on the Christian life, but they've been taught and it's being reinforced. You already have everything. It must be something wrong with you. No, you may need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or the person who's been baptized knows the Lord. They gave their life to the Lord 30 years ago. They have been baptized with the Holy Spirit within a week of being saved, and yet because they don't speak in tongues, they lose this authority within their life, this confidence. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I can stand for God in any environment that He wants me to to put me in. Instead, they've got this nagging doubt. I don't have the gift of tongues, and I won't pretend that I have it or pretend to say it for the sake of some other human being, and it always nags at them that they're missing something, that they're a second-class citizen as a result. And we have to be careful as we look at the Scriptures to be wise and rightly dividing the Scriptures so we don't do this thing to God's people in an area of the Christian life that is so important that we be confident in and know where we stand with God on these issues. The single greatest evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit will be Christlikeness. It will be God's agape love. As Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. And now I come to my applications, and I'm not going to preach them. I'm out of time. So there we are. I violated. I've messed up my whole outline. But it's a gracious audience, and I'm not going to force through the applications of the passage beyond the applications that we've looked at. And that is, what do we do when the circumstances in life scatter us and we become disoriented in the midst of it. And we'll save that thought, Lord willing, for next Sunday, though I will have to come up with a new introduction. Let's stand together, and we'll pray. Wonderful truths this morning. I marvel at the Apostle Paul what he became, and I would never appreciate him the way that I do or the grace of God and how it encourages me in God's grace if I did not know something of the fullness of what he was, the monster that he was before he became a Christian, an awful human being in every way. And then here's the mystery, of course, related to Simon the Sorcerer. And we don't bring any great light upon it except to say that no one will solve it. Let everyone be convinced in their own mind. But let's let, look at him with the same grace that so many looked at us with when we began our Christian life and were so rough around the edges. There's nothing that Simon the Sorcerer said to Peter that I was incapable of saying in the same environment if I came from the same background when I was only days old in the Lord. And this morning concerning the Holy Spirit, is the devil kicking you around up one side of the street and down the other on a daily basis? You read the passages of the Bible, you read the Christian life that's described in the Bible, and you smack your lips 
And you know you're born again. You have the witness of the Spirit related to that. But you have no power. Jesus said, if, again, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He's talking to Christians, to people who have a heavenly Father of something further concerning the Holy Spirit. If you want something more and you sense, I need something more, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front who would love to pray with you for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me say one other thing while I've got you standing. I am not against the gift of tongues at all. And the fact that it, it, it occurs four out of five times that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs within the book of Acts makes me realize that that's a gift that ought to be significant and significantly represented in the body of Christ. But I can never go to the place of saying you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit unless you have it because Paul wrote to the church at Corinth who was a Pentecostal, was a charismatic church, and he said the rhetorical question, <clears throat> do all speak in tongues? And the answer is no, but be open to every gift of the Holy Spirit that he has for you. But it is not the litmus test for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Don't you bear any guilt related to that. If you've asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have received it by faith and walk in the fullness of it. And don't ever consider yourself to be secondary in some kind of a way because you put, don't possess a gift that somebody else does possess. Everybody's in that category as a Christian. Every one of us is in a place where we don't possess some gift of the Holy Spirit that others do possess, but we possess then what they don't possess. No guilt trip related to all of this. If you stand here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you may be thinking to yourself, what was that 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 man just put me through for the last 45 minutes? Here's the message for you. God will save you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he is your Savior, and he is the salvation that God has provided to mankind for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you'd like to be forgiven of your sins and to enter into the relationship with God that you've been created for and live the rest of this life with the confidence of heaven after this life and so much more, it's all there in receiving the gift of salvation, the gift of salvation found in Christ. And these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you after the service to receive that gift as well. Tonight at 6 o'clock, the focus of our message, we returned on Sunday night to our survey of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but we're going to maintain second Sundays as a time, Sunday nights as a time for extended worship, the Lord's Supper, the ministry of the Word and in introducing that fellowship to one another, Acts 2.42, wonderful time to gather together, see what the Holy Spirit will do in our midst tonight as we enjoy the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. Each of you are invited. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for all that is contained in it. Thank you for all of these little commas and exclamation points and nuances, Lord, that fill in important blanks in our life. 
that cause us to see what you have provided to us that maybe we haven't been open to and we haven't realized could be ours, to protect us from the guilt and the condemnation that comes with other teachings, Lord, when we know that we have your fullness, but they're telling us that we don't. Thank you for the glory of this passage. Thank you for the incredible testimony that Acts chapter 8 is to your grace, both in the life of Saul of Tarsus and also Simon the sorcerer. We praise you for the time that we've been able to spend in your word this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.